Before we turn to God's Word together, I want to say a little bit more just by way of introduction um, to our new series on Rediscovering Rest. We live in a culture of busyness, I've mentioned, but our culture actually equates being busy with being productive, and it equates being productive with being successful. And so in our minds, it's good to be busy, but it means that for many of us, we don't have time for anything. And I think COVID did one of two things for us. For some of us, it forced us to stop. That's obvious. And that was probably actually a good thing. It was probably a positive from the pandemic. But I know some of you are key workers, and for you, actually, the busyness remained. Or in fact, for some of you, I know it actually got busier. Things got more hectic. And so I think one way or another, though, many of us learned the importance of rest and time off. And so that's why we've chosen now, as we start maybe to build towards something more like normality or something busier, we want to think about how we do that well, how important it is to build rest into our schedules as we do that. And we just were singing about building our lives on a firm foundation and taking time out with God in rest seems like a pretty good way to do that. But here's something I read on the blurb of a book recently. Most of us feel utterly ransacked. We are waylaid by endless demands and stifling routines. Even our holidays have a panicky task-like edge to them. If only I had more time is the mantra of our age. If only I had more time. That's something I can definitely identify with. I imagine many of us can. Life through COVID is caused many of us to slow down. But I know that in my own case, before COVID, I would have said, if only there was another day in the week. So I used to say that quite frequently. At that stage, I was studying for the ministry. I was studying full time. So that took up, obviously, a lot of time, probably about 40 hours in the week. But any time that I was preaching, I wanted to invest enough time in that, in preparation for that. Then there was the odd pastoral issue. In that year, I didn't have to do too much, but there were still some things, people I wanted to speak to and catch up with. I wanted to make time just to be with my family. I know how important that is. I know how important it is for my children that I'm not just working all the time and away from them. And on top of that, I know it's important just to make time for me and my wife. I wanted to make time to read. You know, ministers read, don't they? They're meant to read. That's what I've heard. I wanted to make time to to keep up my biblical languages outside of the the college work that I was already doing. I wanted to make time to come to things in Ravenhill, some of the organizations that I would drop into to try and get to know people. It was a pressure to get to know people. I also wanted to make time to be a musician, partly just because I love it, but I think it's important to keep that up. And I think, yeah, that's good. That's good headspace for me. So we'll make time to do that. I wanted to make time to see my extended family, to call in with my parents, my elderly grandfather, Justine's elderly grandparents too. We call with them pretty frequently, or we did. And I wanted to make time to exercise and look after myself because that's important too. You know, especially in ministry, we're we're busy people. We're known for being busy people and often ministers don't look after themselves too well and suffer the consequences. And that's not even everything. You know, the odd invitation to speak would come, the odd event, the odd musical event, something I was asked to play at or extra practices for college worship. And then just life, you know, a child needs to go to the doctor or to this activity or that activity. I mean, this week, I think I spent about an hour and 20 minutes on hold with HMRC. 
you know how it is. Just life gets in the way. The washing machine breaks or something. Life is busy. My life was busy. And you'll notice that I haven't mentioned taking any time off in the middle of that because I had no time to take time off. It just didn't work. Maybe some of you can relate to this, you know, insert your own job and your own family in here, and maybe you look something similar to me. And I guess about two years ago, I recognized this was a bit of a problem in my life. I began to, re- to feel it a wee bit, and I thought, okay, I better do something about this. But the pressures of life just kept pushing me forward, and I didn't really do anything about it. But during lockdown last year, I suffered the consequences of it. Not the first part of lockdown, because that was actually still pretty crazy. You know, I had a degree to finish off when I was studying for the ministry, and many of you will know my wife, Justine, was sort of off her feet um, with complications with her pregnancy. But by the late summer, when things settled down, when the baby arrived, I was mentally and physically and spiritually depleted in a way that I have never known before. I was burnt out. It was just sheer exhaustion. It didn't help having a newborn baby who didn't sleep, of course, but I was just completely exhausted. And I'm not looking for sympathy. I'm not looking for a hug on the way out because you're not allowed to do that anyway. But I say it because I want you to know how important rest is. I learned it the hard way. Proper, biblical, God-given rest is crucial. And I had ignored it for a long time. And when I say a long time, I mean a long time, probably my entire adult life. I've been out six or seven nights in the week, and that's just, you know, that's just how it is. 10, 12, 14 years, however many years it is, it came back to bite me. But come back to bite, it did. I pushed myself too far. I ended up in a scenario where I probably could have been knocked over with a feather, to be honest. And sadly, what happened, and some of you know this, but I wasn't knocked over with a feather. I was hit by a steam train when my mum received terminal diagnosis last August. And I know that that would have felt like being hit by a train any time. Of course it would. You know, it would have knocked me off my stride no matter when in life. Even if I'd been on the top of life's hills, it would have knocked me off. But boy, did it expose problems in my life. The news would have devastated me any time, yes. But when you're running on fumes for too long, when you're burning it at both ends for a long time, you're ill-prepared for the times when life throws at you, the things that it will throw at you. Let's face it, there will always be things in this world which will devastate us. There's no getting away from that. But at least if you have something in the tank, if you've rested up, well, you'll be hit, but you'll have that firm foundation that we were speaking about. But when it comes when you're running on empty, as it did for me, you're in trouble. I'll maybe share a wee bit more in a bit later on and in the weeks ahead, but when Marty suggested doing this little series on rest, I was excited because it's such an important topic to talk about, and I realized that, but I was also daunted because I have to openly say before you, I'm not very good at it. In fact, I'm terrible at it. I'm somebody who isn't particularly good at doing this, but I've learned a lot in the last year or two, and I've recovered a lot really because of a greater appreciation of rest, Christian friends, family, other people too. But the increased effort to actually take time to rest has been absolutely central. So we're going to turn to God's Word in a moment, but before I do that, I just want to recommend a few books. I don't normally 
do this. Um, we don't normally do this, um, but there are three books just that I've come across in the last year or two, which I think are really good. And if you can identify with me in saying, I need more time, I need more time in the day, I need an extra day in the week, well then this is for you. And if you're sitting there thinking, how on earth are we going to listen to the rest for four weeks? I have no idea what this has to do with my life. Sorry, but um, hopefully by the end of tonight, you'll be convinced um, that we need to consider this um, and think about it all together. So the first book, um, they're, they're written on the sheet there for you, so don't, don't worry, you'll, you'll have it to take away if any of this jumps out to you. And it's a book by Adam Marby. It's called The Art of Rest, Faith to Hit Pause in a World That Never Stops. And the reason why really I'm recommending this is because in these four um, Sundays through June, we're going to be following through the structure of this book. Now, we're not just copying it because Adam Marby puts a lot of his own experience in here, which isn't my experience or Marty's experience or Scott, I think you're on next week. It's not his experience either. But we're following the structure of it because it is really good. So it's a really handy companion. Um, if you wanted to read along with it while we're going through this, you might find that beneficial. Or if you find these four weeks good and you think at the end, well, do you know what? I'm going to have a bit of time off over the next couple of weeks. I, I would like to look into that a wee bit more. It might be a good book to get your hands on. Then the next is actually, it's actually two books. Um, I have one of them um, by David Murray called Reset. Um, there's also one called Refresh. And the difference between the two is that Reset is aimed at men and Refresh is aimed at women. I, I gather they're essentially nearly the same book, um, but he's worked with his wife Shona on Refresh just to tailor it a little bit for the women. Um, and this is really practical. If you've got a scientific brain like, like I do, that kind of just do stuff brain, well then it works really well because it's blunt and it tells you what to do. So it gives sort of diagnostic tests for various elements in your life, whether it's relationships or your spiritual life or work or church service or whatever it is. And then it tells you what to do about it, which is what I um, really needed. It was given to me by a, a minister um, about six months ago. And what I did with it is I read a chapter a week and then the practical things that it tells you to do, I tried to do that in the week in between I was reading each chapter. Um, and it, it really helped. Um, both of those first two books and even the third one, they come from people who have been through burnout. Um, for Adam Mabry, he's a church planter um, and he overworked to the point where, where his work and his marriage were really um, falling apart because he was just working, 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 working and his, the relationships all around him were failing. For David Murray, um, he worked himself, thankfully I didn't do quite this bad, but David worked himself to the point where he had blood clots um, all, all over his body. He just, you know, poor lifestyle, stress, work, 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 um, and he was stopped um, by that, really, and that, that's what made him turn around and, and look into this, and so he's written this book. His wife, Shona, has also um, suffered burnout, and um, I think she was she had quite a long battle with depression as a result of burnout. So again, there's, there's lots of really helpful insights um, in all of that. And this book makes me laugh because it was given to me, and it's, it's called The Rest of God by Mark Buchanan, Restoring Your Soul by Restoring Sabbath. Um, it was given to me by another PCI minister about two years ago when I was telling him how busy I was. And he said, I think that would really help you. And if I'd done what was in here, um, it might have. Um, if the other book is quite scientific and blunt, this one is more artsy. And what I mean by that is that it's really, really well written. It's exquisitely written. The, the, the other one's blunt, but this is gentle, um, and it's quite enjoyable. 
And where those other books look at loads of aspects of life, like work and family and stuff, this book is more about what to do on your day off or, or when you take your rest and then how that will impact other aspects of your life. Again, I, I did about a chapter a week because at the end of each chapter, there's a, there's a little action for you to do um, and that's quite a useful thing to do. Um, it, this is all about stopping, which is really useful. Stopping to think anew, stopping to find what's missing, stopping to see God's bigness, stopping to number our days right, stopping to remove taskmasters, stopping legalism. Um, there's 14 of them, I'll not read them all, but, but they're, they're really, really useful things to do um, if you're going to take um, this idea of rest seriously. Um, I don't know, maybe a, a Sunday afternoon or something like that, a day when you're maybe not doing very much, just a bit of time to spend in the quiet with God. Um, and to read that. So those are some recommendations, and I will, um, I will turn to them at different points um, throughout tonight. But let's turn now just to God's Word in Matthew chapter 11. Um, some of these verses are, are really well known. They're printed on your um, sheet if you want them. Um, but I'm reading um, the verses before the verses, which are really well known, because I think that's important um, just for context. So we're reading from Matthew chapter 11 and beginning at verse 20. This is God's Word. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of His miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in, so in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, have your way in us. Lord, as we come now to think about this topic of rest, to see what you teach us about it in your word, we pray that you would be here with us, especially by your Holy Spirit, that we would know you here, and that we would know you speaking to us. Lord, as we come to you with all our lives, our hearts, and our souls, Lord, help us to be open to what the Spirit is doing in these moments. Have your way in us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. 
I don't know if I've lost all credibility with you by telling you how rubbish I am um, at stopping and, and resting. And because we're Presbyterians, there's no way to know because there's no audience participation. But I suspect that when I say I'm not very good at rest, that I'm not the only one. I suspect, especially in this part of the world, that I'm not alone. I have a friend um, who went on a mission team to a number of different countries in Africa, um, Malawi mostly, but a few other places. And he said that in every village he went to, people stopped and pointed at him because in those regions there weren't very many white people around. So he kind of stood out. And as they pointed at him, they all said the same word, Mzungu, Mzungu. It's a Swahili word, though variations of it do exist in other languages from that area. And it's the word that Africans, many Africans use to describe Westerners, especially white people. Do you know what that word actually means? The word means spinning, spinning. And you see, if you or I went to Malawi, we'd see that their culture is really quite different, especially when it comes to time. I found a similar thing over in Eastern Europe before. Timetables, they're just a guide. You know, they're there, we'll do the things in that order, but you see the times beside them, don't take those too seriously. People don't show up on time for stuff because they're not expected to. Church goes on for hours and hours, and people are just coming and going all the time, all through the service, and that's just normal. Nobody rushes to anything. And that culture is foreign to those of us who grew up here. And yet the reverse is also true. Our timetable culture, where things start on time generally, we're walking into something halfway through is you know, just a little bit awkward. Well, that's foreign to many people in the world, especially non-Westerners. And so this frenzied, rushing culture that we live in is so remarkable that some people say of us that we're just spinning around, spinning, 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 spinning from one thing to another, dizzy, not really knowing where we're going. From the outside, as they look at us, that's what they see, spinning. And I think they're right. We rush to everything. We rush to things at the last minute, often trying to get there on time, trying not to have that black mark against our name and work because we want to get on in our careers. As parents, we rush our kids out the door. I don't know how many times I say to my children, come on, would you be a bit faster? Because we've got to get out. We've got to get to this thing. We've got to get to school on time. We've got to get to this activity because we think that's good for them. We think it's good to put them under that pressure. We rush to meet deadlines. We rush to get tasks done. We rush, rush, and rush because we're busy. And if you're a Christian, then at times that just seems to add in a little bit more busyness because you've got to do all that other stuff in the first place, don't you? But you're also meant to do it thoughtfully and prayerfully and intentionally and maybe even trying to reach out to people as you do it, as if for the Lord. So you're meant to, you know, stop and pray about all this stuff, so that's more time. You're meant to give to church. You're meant to give time to church. You're meant to try to witness to people around you. You're meant to make time to read the Bible and to pray. Maybe you contemplate getting up earlier in the day, reducing your sleep to do that. You want to be a godly parent or spouse, child or friend, co-worker, whatever it is. And that's just more for us to do. And so when we come to Jesus, often we come with a sense of guilt and a sense that we're not doing enough for him. We feel like we're not reading the Bible enough, and maybe we're not, or praying enough. 
We didn't get that work thing finished, so we didn't have time to pray that day. We didn't spend enough time with the kids. We weren't godly enough for them. We snapped at them. We didn't make it to the church event because we had to stay late somewhere else. And we come to him and we feel like we're not doing enough for him, which is strange because Jesus asks us to do something different. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. We come to Jesus as the one who accomplished more than anyone else ever could and did so with more restfulness and peace that any of us have ever experienced. And yet we come thinking that we're not doing enough. It doesn't make sense. And it's serious, I think. That's why I read more of Matthew 11 than just the, the familiar verses at the end because Jesus actually begins by speaking of several cities in Israel, cities that saw him and saw the miracles that he did, Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, they saw his miracles. It actually says that he did most of his miracles in those places, and they hadn't repented. They hadn't turned to him to receive the rest that he gives those who come to him. And he says they'll suffer on the day of judgment for it. So I think it's serious. Now, if you're a Christian, you won't suffer on the day of judgment, of course not. But Jesus doesn't just call us to rest, he calls us to repent. Repent from the way of the world, to turn away from the way of the world, the busy, 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 busy. He says, no, that's not my way. Come to me and receive rest. And maybe if we did that, we maybe wouldn't be the hurried and frayed people that we are. And actually in front of people we could witness because they would see that we're different that we have a peace that they don't have, an easy yoke and a light burden. And just one thing as an aside, this isn't necessarily about your scheduling, about your planning. At the start of every week, every Monday, I went into Union College and I scheduled my week within an inch of its life. I got a big whiteboard in one of the rooms at the back of college and I ruled it into seven days and I planned my whole week. I even planned when I would eat. That's how well scheduled it was. I planned when I was going to work on each essay, when I was going to take time off just to be with my family, everything. The failure on my part wasn't a lack of planning. It was just having too many things in the diary. It's not just an issue of scheduling one day off, either once a week or whenever. It's not just the case of keeping a Sabbath. Now, there's merit in that, and we'll, we'll talk about that certainly in the weeks ahead. But I had a day off every week. Saturdays, I didn't do any college or church work, but I was still running around like a headless chicken. It's more about an attitude than a schedule. It's about an attitude, and it's also about a, a rhythm, a habit, rather than a harsh rule. That's not me saying anything against the Sabbath, against one day of rest in the week. But when we limit Sabbath to just that, we actually miss most of what the Bible has to say about rest and actually even about Sabbath. And I think this is part of the problem for us. I've said the word now, Sabbath. I wonder what you think about when I say that word. For some people, it's a strict religious idea where there are restrictions on cooking or work or housework or sport or play. And I think one of the reasons that we don't embrace the idea of Sabbath is because we misunderstand it. We think of it as this cold, pharisaic activity. 
It sounds awful. It sounds awful. It sounds like that wouldn't rest us up at all. We'd just be stressed about making sure that we're not doing this and we're not doing that and we're not getting it wrong. Or maybe when I say the word Sabbath, you don't really know what it means. You didn't grow up in any kind of Sabbath routine. You didn't grow up in any kind of Sabbath culture. You don't know what it is. Or maybe you wish you could have it. You know, it sounds good to have a day when, when you don't do the things that you do in all the other days. But when you get rest, you actually feel guilty or lazy. I would have felt that way at times if I took time just to myself. Oh, there are all these things I should be doing. Just too many things to be doing. Or maybe you even think that you just wouldn't do the Sabbath right. Maybe you wouldn't be godly enough or something. So you just avoid it. But we need to rest. As Adam Mabry's book title says, we need faith to hit the pause button. We need it because we're wired that way. It will find us out eventually if we don't do it. But we also need to do it because it's what Jesus has won for us. I'm not going to read the verses tonight, but in Hebrews 4, it says, when we trust in Christ, we enter into God's rest. And it says we should make every effort to enter into that rest. It's heaven. It's what heaven is. And if we're created for heaven and destined for heaven, then shouldn't we be preparing ourselves, enjoying the Sabbath rest of God now? Because we already have it. We don't have to wait. So what is the Sabbath rest? How do we define it? Well, as I say, I'm going to steer away tonight um, from questions like when or which day or whatever, all of those things, we will come to them. But tonight, my focus is on why we need rest. Why are we talking about it in these coming weeks? What is it? And in order to answer that question, we need to define what Sabbath actually is. And Adam Mabry gives it a very simple and accurate definition. It's a definition that sums up the church's teaching on this for 2,000 years. And it's simply this, Sabbath is a time of rest, holy to the Lord. It's a time of rest, holy to the Lord. So it's stopping, but it's not just stopping for me. It's something which is dedicated to God. And we soon see as we trace this idea through the rest of the Bible that this time of rest, holy to the Lord, is what we were created for. And we know that because it's what God does in the creation story. And I'll, I'll join those two things in a moment. God did it, so we have to do it. And there is a connection there. Here's some verses from the beginning of Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from the work of creating that he had done. And the word there that is translated as rested is the Hebrew word Shabbat. It's the word we get Sabbath from, but it literally means to stop to cease. It doesn't mean that God put his feet up and got pampered or whatever. I, I know that's inappropriate to talk about God in that way, but you know what I mean? It doesn't say that. It just says that he stopped. He ceased. He didn't stop because he was tired. Psalm 121 tells us that God doesn't slumber or sleep. He stopped and simply existed. He stopped simply to be, to enjoy relationship with his creatures, to dwell with his people, and to show this pattern for us 
We'll come back to that in a moment, but we're made in God's image, and so part of what it means to be human is to rest like God and to rest with God. Our times of rest are to be time spent with our loving God because that's what the first Sabbath was. I don't know if you ever realized or noticed in the the, the story in the opening chapters of Genesis that the seventh day never ends. There's no end to the seventh day. The other days in the creation story, no matter how we understand them, they all come to an end. There was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day, and so on through the first six days, but not the seventh. The seventh day doesn't come to an end. There's no evening recorded. And that's significant, I think, because it was God's plan for His creation to be with His people. That was it, six six days of creation, and then dwelling with His people forever. That was the blueprint. That's what the intention was all along. Of course, it didn't last. With the fall in the Garden of Eden, God banished Adam and Eve from His presence because His anger burned rightly against their sin. But all through history, it's been God's intention to dwell with His people. They will be my people and I will be their God. Those words in some form or another come up all through the Bible. Those aren't all the references. They're just ones that show that at every significant point in the biblical story, this has been God's motto. They will be my people and I will be their God. I will dwell with them. I will live with them. And so after the fall, God gave his people a Sabbath day, a temple where he would be present with his people that they would come into on the Sabbath to worship him. God's omnipresent, we know that, but the temple was a place where God was especially present with His people, where He revealed Himself in a particular way, I suppose you might say. And the temple or the tabernacle, depending on which point of history you're looking at, that was a place where there were constant reminders of Eden, the types of wood that were used, the embroidery, the direction they faced even, they all reminded the people of Eden. And so did the time because worship in the temple happened on the Sabbath, the time of rest reminiscent of God ceasing from His work of creation. The first Sabbath was meant to be without end, God dwelling with His people forever. The Sabbath that we ended up with, well, that was just one day in the week as a result of that first sin. But God was reminding His people that He was their God, they were His people, and that it was his desire to dwell with them, even though that one day was only a shadow of the first Sabbath. And it's that original Sabbath rest that Jesus Christ has restored in paying the price for our sins. We're actually going to see next Sunday morning in Colossians where Paul says, look, don't let anyone judge you with regard to a religious day or a Sabbath or a new moon, because these things are only a shadow of the reality which is found in Christ. And so we know that there's a greater reality. We know a greater reality than those Old Testament believers who received the commands for the seventh day. We know the rest of God in Christ. We look forward to the day talked about in Revelation 21, where there's no sun because God himself dwells with us. He is our God. We are his people. But we're not there yet. And yet we enjoy something of that rest now because of what Jesus has done. Familiar words, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you're God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells 
in you. Okay, so that's a bit of theology, but let's bring this into the, the here and now. We have the place to rest with God because we are the place. The church is the place. We are the temple. But the question is, do we take the time to rest? Not all Christians agree about what that time should be. Some still think pretty strictly in terms of one day in a week. Others are freer than that. For what it's worth, I think one day in seven is a pretty good pattern, but I wouldn't be legalistic about it. But this is what rest is. It's, it's time holy to the Lord, time spent with Him. And based on the number of times God says it in the Bible, based on the fact that it was His purpose for us when He made us, and it's His purpose for us in Christ in the new creation, then it's probably something we should take pretty seriously. But we don't. We don't tend to do it. We don't tend to take it seriously because there are a number of barriers in our minds which prevent us from stopping and resting. I just want to look at um, three of these. But, um, I suppose there could be any number. But the first barrier is that we believe we are what we do. Here's how one commentator has put it. Perhaps the most ingenious lie that the modern world has believed is that to be busy is to be better. We have a strange cultural addiction to busyness. We've managed to take something that has in every culture until recently been a vice, and through the magic of repeating a bad idea for long enough, we have turned it into a virtue. Oh, I'm so busy this week, we say. But what we're often really saying is, look how important I am. I have many things to do, and I must do them. We think that busyness is a virtue, showing how important we are, and it's a real temptation for us, but it's idolatry. It is idolatry, pure and simple. The idol is ourselves and what people think of us, but busyness is, in fact, a vice. It's often used by Satan to keep us from God, and instead of God, what we get is a bunch of stuff that consumes our lives if we let it. We get ourselves into a position where we think that we're too busy to rest. That's, that's where I was a year and a half ago. And we miss out on God when the reality is that if we prior, prioritized rest with God, the rest of our lives wouldn't fall apart. We are not what we do. We are who we are, and we are who we are because of Christ. And so rest is a time simply to be without being busy. A second barrier to rest can be to say that God has given us too much to do. And what I mean by that is that we're actually so busy serving God and doing things for God that we miss out on the God part. We avoid rest. We avoid God Himself. I've mentioned that I got this book approximately um, two years ago from a, a good friend of mine. And the reason it didn't change my life, though it should have, is that I saw rest as just another thing to do for God on top of everything else. And I didn't have time for that. I didn't have time for the everything else, never mind doing that as well. I was busy with the children, with college, with church. If I was being very pious, I would have said that, you know, I was obeying God with all of my life, which, you know, I'm lying to myself there when I say that. But, you know, I would say, oh, well, you know, he's called me to be a dad and he's called me to be a minister, so I need to give my full time to all these things. But the truth is, some of those activities for God were actually preventing me from just getting God. 
Now, don't get me wrong, my relationship with God in these times wasn't non-existent, but it certainly wasn't all it could have been. It wasn't. And that's because I wasn't taking the time to rest and to rest with Him. And what that does is it puts you at risk of putting yourself first, putting yourself in charge, and of thinking that actually we deserve blessing, you know, because we're doing so much for God. And I suppose then that if you actually manage to get a bit of rest, then, you know, take that's another thing that I've done for God, so I probably deserve even a wee bit more blessing. But that's not how it works. Rest isn't an item to be added to your list. It's an essential. And so if you're too busy, then can I urge you, you need to take a long, hard look at all that you do, even things that you do for God, and get rid of some of them that aren't essential. Because Satan is using these things to ambush your relationship with God. Instead of just doing rest and get God. And as things pick up again in the autumn, make sure that it's just solidly built in. But sometimes then a third barrier comes into play because we think that if we stop, things won't work out for us. We think if we stop to take time with God, well, then there's something else that we're not doing. So we'll fail in that aspect of our lives or we'll not do as well. And that means our lives won't work out the way we want them to. I used to do this with college assignments. You know, if, if I take too much time out in, in a quiet time in the day, then I'll not have as much time in a college assignment. Then I might fail it and, and then, you know, things won't work out. But I'd go even further than that. Uh, <laughs> I'd kind of theologize it. I, I'd say, you know, I'm a student for the ministry and I'm, I'm funded by the church. You know what? People in the pew pay for me to be here. And that played on my mind. I thought that because of that, I had to spend every possible minute I could on that assignment so that I, I did as well as I could in it. And that was honoring the people, you know, who'd put me there. They, they'd sacrificially put me there. And I was willing to do that even if it meant straining my relationships with those around me and with God. It sounds stupid when you say it like that. I could give myself a slap. But it's what happens, and it can happen to any of us. We think we have to do something for God. And if we do, if we just take time to rest with Him, well, then I'll not do that well enough, and then my life won't work out. What's the idol there? It's our own success. It's how people see us, again, not appearing as a, a failure if, if, if you fail one of those assignments, for example. But we all do it in one way or another. Maybe we don't make time for God, and, and instead we go to the gym. And the idol there is our own appearance. That could be for any number of reasons. Maybe it's because we're single and we think we have to, you know, look our best so that we can find a spouse or something. That's important for us, for our life to work out. But again, the idol there is ourselves. It's a spouse. It's maybe even sex. Or maybe it's work. You neglect your relationship with God, so you do extra work and you work harder because you want to climb the career ladder. And the idol there is probably money. And all of those things work Health, money, sex, food, drink, whatever it is, they're all good. God made all of them. But they're not good if they stand in the way of rest. They're not good if we pursue them too much because actually what they'll do is they'll burn us out. We need rest. And so, finally and briefly, rest is about who rules and rest is about who rescues. 
I've given you there the, the two times in Scripture that the Ten Commandments are given in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. In both cases, God says that people are not to work, not them or anyone in their household, even foreigners who aren't followers of God, even animals aren't allowed to work on the Sabbath. But it's, it's the points that I put in italics which are also really important. In Exodus, God says, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested, and that's the same word, ceased, he ceased on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. In a nutshell, God says to people, stop, because I made everything. You see, if we refuse to rest, it's worse than not just taking care of ourselves. It's worse than the fact that we could burn ourselves out. What we're saying is with our mouths, we say, yeah, I believe God rules, God's in charge. But with what we're living out, we're saying, I'm in charge, I rule. We don't believe in God's rule to the point where we're willing to set aside our own rule for a few hours. We've idolized our work or whatever it is so much that we refuse to honor God as the ultimate ruler and creator of all. But when we do stop, um, Adam Mabry says it, it's a declaration to ourselves and to our children and to our communities and even to our demanding bosses that we don't worship our work or its results. Regular rest is the practice by which we say with our lives, the God who made the world rules the world, and I trust him to do it better than me. Now, that requires us letting go. It, it requires us letting go of our own control to trust that he really does rule and that everything won't fall apart if I step back for a bit. And rest is also about who rescues. Look at what God says in Deuteronomy when he gives the Sabbath command again, when he restates it, this time he says, though, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Rest because I rescued you. Rest because I rescued you. The Israelites were slaves, completely against their will, of course, but God sent Moses and he brought them out of slavery. Jesus is greater than Moses. He, he gives us an even greater exodus. He delivers us from everything in this world that would enslave us. He delivers us from our sin and he delivers us from the sin and the idolatry in our culture which says I have to keep on working and achieving to be accepted. That's not his way. The gospel declares that we are accepted and that all the work has been done. Jesus said, it is finished. And that's not to say that your work has no importance or that your service for God is of no importance either, but it certainly is to say that those things are not your master. You've been rescued. You're no longer a slave to anything in this world because you have this Sabbath rest available to you in Christ, if you'll just stop. Your work could never build eternity, but his work has built eternity. So here is invitation to come to him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love this last quote from Adam Mambry, and I, I finished with this. You won't lose anything by resting that you need to keep, and you won't gain anything by overwork that you won't one day lose. You won't lose anything by resting that you need to keep. You won't gain anything by overwork that you won't one day lose. So I hope tonight has been a challenge, if, if you needed to be challenged, to repent from busyness as I often do. I was really glad this morning when Marty said in the sermon that we're not perfect because we're definitely not. I hope tonight has given you a bit of a, a, a taste and even a hunger for the rest that is found in God. And I hope and pray that over the next few weeks that increases more and more. Let's pray. Lord, we know that you call us out of this world to, to repent. Lord, we know that that means we remain in the world, and yet we're not of the world. Lord, we confess that all too often that our world's fascination with busyness and with doing has consumed us, that we've made idols of all kinds of things, be it our work, our, our family, Lord, even our service of you. Lord, we confess that often we have done these things to the point of actually just neglecting to stop and to commune with you. So, Lord, forgive us, we pray. And, Lord, give each one of us a, a desire just for you. Lord, as we sang earlier, have your way in us. Lord, we pray that you would give each one of us a taste for and a hunger for you and your presence and your rest and your Sabbath and your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.